waiting. There we go. We're drawing near to the end of our systematic theology survey. That's what this class has been, a, a quick survey of systematic theology. I say quick, we started last September, didn't we? And we're almost there. I think we have four more to go after today, and then we'll be done with um, Greg Allison's book, 50 Core Truths. The last section we come to, the last section of the book has to do with the doctrine of future things. We call that eschatology. That's a 50 cent word, but it just means the doctrine of last things. It comes from this Greek word eschatos, which means last, and the word logos, and you can, you can just about see that in this word, can't you? If we transliterate these Greek letters, we get something like this. And then we add the word, the Greek word logos, a word about last things. That's what eschatology is. It's the doctrine of last things. And uh, he saved that for the last part of the book, which makes perfect sense. Um, the last days actually began when? I think Jason said this last Sunday. How precise do you want to be? <laughs> Hebrews 12.2 says that, that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. So bigger picture, the last days began with the ministry of Jesus. More focused, the last days began with the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost. That's a little more focused, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, quoting the prophecy from Joel, and in these last days God has poured forth his Spirit. <clears throat> so don't, don't buy into the very tempting structure that the last days are the last days. These are the last days. The disciples lived in the last days. The Apostle John wrote in the last days. Jesus inaugurated the last days. Now, obviously, there's going to come a time when we get to the end of the last days. So the last, last days, maybe. Um, but the doctrine of eschatology has to do with, more precisely, the end of the last days. Okay? Now, as you've already discovered in reading Allison's book, there's a lot of disagreement as to the order of things at the very end of the last days. So here's one example. <laughs> Don't try to read the whole thing, okay? You, you'll, you'll fail. Um, this is from a guy named Clarence Larkin, who was, who was uh, no doubt a genuine believer and adopted that position that there are multiple returns of Jesus, a pre-trib, pre-mill view of eschatology, and he had it all laid out down to the details. There's that view. Um, I, and I only put that up there to say there's so much disagreement. That's not where I am. Okay, I'll show you mine in just a couple of minutes. But there's a lot of disagreement on how all this is gonna play out. Our chapter today is about the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Jesus, although that plays into this, <clears throat> but um, the resurrection at the end of the last days. We're not going to resolve all the differences in these last seven chapters of Allison's book, but I do hope it'll fuel your interest in a careful study of the scriptures on these issues. And I'll say as a matter of perspective that in the broader scope of church history, and you understand that church history is broader than the last 75 or 100 years, right? Church history has been going on since when? Not a trick question. 1 AD, okay. And, and if you... If you expand your definition of the church more broadly, it's been going on since creation. creation. But, we but we tend to be 
church history is the last, it's just what I know about, no? Um, so just as a matter of perspective, in the broader scope of church history, more than just the last 150 years, the church has leaned more toward an amillennial position than just about any other. That there's going to be one return of Jesus and everything happens at that point. The millennium is a long, the thousand years is a figurative expression for a long period of time prior to the coming of Christ. And Jesus comes and boom, it's over. That's a real simplification of the millennial position, okay? But that has been the predominant view in church history. In, uh, that's been the predominant view in church history. The, the very precisely ordered, defined, um, this kind of stuff, pre-tribulation rapture, premillennial, multiple returns of Christ, has only been popularized in the last, say, 150 years or so. There's been an historic primo position that is different than all that stuff, but predominantly in church history, the prevailing view has been a nonmillennial view. That may be a helpful perspective to widen our view just a little bit and to back up. Um, so the chapters in this last section have already been assigned to various teachers, Jason and Larry and me. Um, but because of schedules, we've had to rearrange the order in which we're teaching them. That, that's why we're on the chapter on uh, the resurrection today. And... Jason, did you and Larry switch? Yep. Eternal or final judgment next week. Millennium next week. Okay, the final judgment is next week. Jason will be teaching that. The following week, Larry will do the millennium. Then there'll be a chapter on the eternal punishment, and we'll finish up with the new heavens and the new earth. So apologize for the rearrangement of the order, but that's that's where we're heading. So today our subject is the resurrection. Um the resurrection at the last great day when Jesus returns, a resurrection that involves both the righteous and the unrighteous, and that radically impacts both the living and the dead when Jesus returns. Now, let me say a couple of preliminary things before we launch into this uh, whole discussion. And the first is this. This stuff about resurrection is mind-blowing. Have you ever thought about it? More than just, yep, there's going to be a resurrection at the last day. You think about it. It's actually mind-blowing. Bodies coming up out of graves all over the planet. Yeah, really. That's mind-blowing. That's just one little piece of Arlington National Cemetery. I actually tried to Google how many cemeteries there are in the world. And it's all over the map. <laughs> cemeteries are all over the map. They are. They're everywhere. There are little lost ones back in the woods. There are massive ones uh, in Europe. There are massive ones in the United States. There are, we got a couple of big ones right here in Owensboro that are kind of sort of big. They're all, that's mind-blowing. The bodies are going to be coming up out of graves all over the world. And if we are not absolutely persuaded of the reality of the supernatural, then talk of a final resurrection is nonsense. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, okay? That goes without saying. But let's be sure we're not missing the boat on this presupposition, because not everybody buys it, that there is such a thing as the supernatural. There is. If you read your Bible with open eyes, the supernatural is all over the place. God spoke everything into being out of nothing. Well, okay, that's kind of supernatural, isn't it? You got nothing and all of a sudden you got everything? And it got there by speaking, by God speaking? Boom. That's supernatural. He parted the Red Sea. He led Israel with a pillar of cloud and fire. He took down the walls of Jericho with a shout. He kept Daniel's three friends in the middle of a blazing furnace. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He walked on water. He silenced the storm with his word. He raised the dead, made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. He fed thousands with a little boy's lunch. Why should we find it hard to believe that on the last day, he's going to raise bodies out of the ground, all over the planet? 
the presupposition is that there is such a thing as the supernatural. And that needs to be the conviction of our hearts. My second sort of preliminary thought is this. The whole process of salvation is aiming at what final end? What do we call it? There's a word in the, in the, in the process of redemption. What's the, what's the end of that thing? Glorification. Glorification. Um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that, to this end, that we may also be glorified with him. That's where we're going. We're heading to glorification. Okay? And you know this familiar one, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and he be predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so certain is glorification to come that he puts it in the past tense as if, as if it's already happened. But that's, that's where we're heading, okay? In the process of redemption, glorification is coming. Even for those whose souls are already present with the Lord, is Eric Long's mom and our dear brother Harold, are they glorified yet? No. They're unbelievably blessed. They're, they're in the perfection of the presence of God. But are they glorified yet? Not yet. That's coming. They got something to look forward to. Uh, we don't think of that in those terms very often, do we? That those who have died and gone to be with the Lord still have something to look forward to? They do. Glorification is coming. Even for those whose souls are already present with the Lord. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves... Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, say it, redemption of our what? Harold's still waiting for that. Doris Long is still waiting for that. My mom is still waiting for that. My dad is still waiting for that. And all kinds of other people here. Sorry, not here. <laughs> here and not here are waiting for that glorification is where we're moving okay it involves the whole man body and soul and my point here is simply to say that the resurrection on that last great day is our entrance into glorification resurrection is the gate we walk through that gate and boom glorification Resurrection is how we get to that end that God has designed for us all along. Okay? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That power is going to burst forth in the resurrection. And our bodies will be conformed to the body of Jesus. Think about that. If you can for very long, without feeling like you're going to lose your mind. Wow. So... Um, we, we've, got to, we've got to be persuaded of the supernatural. And resurrection is our entrance into that state of glorification. Okay? Now, I hope that whets our appetites a little bit for the rest of this brief treatment on uh, the resurrection. Uh, we'll try to cover these three things, and I actually think I'll be done early, so if you've got questions, just hang on to them, and Jason will answer them. Okay. Uh, the nature of the resurrection, the time of the resurrection, 
and the practical implications of the resurrection. We'll spend, actually, we're going to spend most of our time on the first one, the nature of the resurrection. The time of the resurrection will be relatively brief, and then just a couple of minutes on practical implications of the resurrection. So let's talk about the nature of the resurrection. First, it will be all-inclusive. <coughs> Excuse me. It's going to be all-inclusive. Jesus speaks more than once about the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. <clears throat> the resurrection is not just something for believers. It's going to be for the just and the unjust. Listen to these scriptures. Is that readable? Is that big enough to read? Um, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming... And now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Pause. Who's Jesus talking about? What is he talking about? In, in, in the first half of this. An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Don't you mess up my outline, Jason. You say it's resurrection. Is it not both the resurrection and the spiritually? It's the spiritually. It's it's the resurrection of the spirit. It's conversion. It's the effectual call that regenerates a dead sinner and they come to life and repent and believe. They shall hear the voice. It and ours coming and now is. When the dead, in their sins, shall hear the voice of the Son of God calling them to life, and they repent and believe. Okay? For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. It's not here yet. And I was coming in which all who are in the tombs, what kind of dead are they? Physically dead. When all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Who's going to hear that voice the second time? Everybody. All who are in the tombs. Everybody who's alive on the earth at the time is going to hear it too. But the point here is that every, all the, everybody in the everybody, everybody, the just and the unjust. If you're in a tomb, you're going to hear that voice. We're coming to that. Just hang on, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly true. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory <clears throat> and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and, next three words, all the nations will be gathered before him. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Who's going to be gathered before him when he comes in his glory? All the nations. All the nations. Everyone will be there, the just and the unjust. Have you ever tried to put names to that? Adam will be there. Eve will be there. Jacob and Esau will be there. Every Pharaoh will be there. Moses will be there. Abraham, Isaac. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar. Martin Luther. Every Pope. My grandchildren. Your children. 
your next door neighbor? I mean, work it out. <laughs> all the nations, all the nations will be there. It's all inclusive. The just and the unjust. And while the resurrection has technically to do with those who have died, the scriptures are clear that those who are alive on the earth at the time of the resurrection will be involved in the judgment of that last great day as well. <clears throat> no one will be excluded. Think about the magnitude of this event. All who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. The long forgotten cemeteries will bust open. The most well guarded and secure will break open. The biggest, the most vast cemeteries will burst forth. The long forgotten, ignored, and neglected cemeteries. And Patrick, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is not normal. This is supernatural. And because it's supernatural, it really doesn't matter if a body has long since decayed and rotted. It does not matter if it was buried at sea. It does not matter if it was burned at the stake or eaten by cannibals. That body is going to rise. And why should that, why should that surprise us? Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the God who created everything out of nothing. Which body of mind is going to rise? Because isn't there some scientific evidence that every seven years all the cells in your body change or something like that? Um, the, the number of years might be off, but our, our, our cells are changing all the time. So which body of mind is going to The one right now or the one seven years ago or the one that had hair? <laughs> <laughs> you know um, so it's, it's all inclusive it is totally all inclusive no exceptions everybody's going to be there it's going to be a physical resurrection the resurrection of Jesus was a physical bodily Yes, miraculous, but nonetheless physical, bodily resurrection. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Put, put yourself in that room. Do that when you read the Bible. Put yourself in their sandals. Put yourself in their robes. Put yourself in their room. Put yourself in their seat. Be there. Crank up that thing called your imagination that God gave you and be there in that space. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. That's a resurrected body. That's a body. That's a body that they could touch. And remember who these guys were. They saw that body mutilated and killed and laid in a tomb and now that body is standing there and it's the body of Jesus <clears throat> and he says touch me and see 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And they recognized them as his flesh and bones. More about that in a minute. His resurrection is described in terms that indicate that his, okay, his resurrection was a physical bodily resurrection. That's important. Secondly, his resurrection is described in terms that indicate that his was the first of many. There are going to be more resurrections like his, that is bodily, to come. He also is head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He's the firstborn from the dead. How many of you have brothers and sisters? Are any of you the oldest? You have younger siblings. What's that make you? (laughs) Thank you for that confession. If you have younger siblings, that makes you the firstborn. If you don't have younger siblings, that makes you the only child. Firstborn indicates that there are more to come. So firstborn means that there's, if, if, yeah, if you're the only child, technically you are the firstborn, but firstborn intimates by the very expression of first that there's going to be a second that there was a second and a third and a thousandth and a millionth and a billionth. Jesus is the firstborn. There are more to come. Okay? Um, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all should be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ that is coming. His resurrection was not only physical, his resurrection was the first of many more to come. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ that is coming. So if his resurrection was a bodily one, and if his resurrection was the first of many, then guess what? There's more resurrections coming, and mine is going to be bodily too. Because it's going to be just like his. It's also going to be a glorified body. It's bodily, his, his resurrection is the first of many to come. It's also going to be a glorified body. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown as weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Does I brought help with me today? Does a spiritual body mean immaterial? Who said no? You're right. It does not it does not mean immaterial. Um Pastor Sam's exposition of the 1689, he quotes another writer. um, Who makes a really good comment on on this whole thing of a spiritual body. Um, I need to condense this quote here. The spiritual does not describe, he's coming on this text, the spiritual does not describe that which is non-material or non-physical. No doubt Paul uses the same contrast 
In the same epistle, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, Now the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually judged. But he that is spiritual judges all things, and himself is judged of no man. He that is spiritual, immaterial? No. No. Controlled, enabled, helped by the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual man. And here in chapter 15 are the same Greek words for spiritual. Does not here mean non-physical. It means someone who's guided by the Holy Spirit, at least in principle, in distinction from someone who's guided by only his natural impulses. The natural body described in 1 Corinthians 15, 44 is one which is part of this present sin-cursed existence. But the spiritual body of the resurrection is one which will be totally, not just partially, dominated and directed by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual body. So, sown in, um, sown a perishable body, raised in imperishable. Sown a dishonor, raised in glory. The resurrection body is going to be a glorified body, not an immaterial, ethereal body, but a physical, glorified body. Philippians chapter 3, for we've read this already once today, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even subject all things to himself. My body, your body, is going to be like Jesus' glorified body. What? Are you kidding? I think that's what that says. Who will transform the body of our humble state in a conformity with the body of his glory by the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Okay, it's going to take some power to get this body to be like his body. <laughs> it's going to take some power to get these bodies to be like his. Glorious glorified, perfect body. That's something to look forward to. <laughs> Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. I'm not sure what all that means, except to say that it's going to be free from sin and sin's effects, and that's enough to make us dance. Okay, now right now. I mean, don't start dancing right this second, okay? Just kind of hold it down. But that day's coming when we will be like him. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, neither shall there, <clears throat> there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Ain't going to be no more pain. I'm ready for that, okay? You? No more tears? No more sorrow. No more crying. We're going to be like Him. The resurrection is a, is a physical, bodily, but it's all inclusive. It will usher us into that state of glorification. And just one more point here on bodily resurrection. Our bodies will be altogether new, but they may also retain their identity. You will be you. And I will be me. I think that's what it's going to be. Our body's going to be resurrected like Jesus' body. 
when Jesus appeared to the disciples? Yeah, he was hid from them to the two subs on the road to Emmaus, but it says he was hidden from them. It's not because his body looked like, man, I've never seen you before. Where'd you come from? No, they, they, were, they were blinded to it. But when he appeared to the disciples in the upper room, they knew it was Jesus. Who are you? How'd you get in here? We miss the focus of that passage if we, if, if we, if we get stuck on how he got in there. Did he come through the wall? Did he open the door? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They knew it was him. And it was him in his physical body, glorified. And when he says, do you have anything to eat? Where did that take place? Was that down on the beach? They knew it was him. They recognized his body. So I think our bodies, while they'll be altogether new, they may retain their identity. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. This mortal becomes immortal. It doesn't become a different person, unrecognizable. It's this mortal puts on immortality. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to to what? Your mortal bodies. Your body. Mark Faulkner. Your body is going to, Jesus is going to put life into that mortal body. So I, 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 I think, I'm not going to die on this beach, but I think there will be identity in heaven and on the new earth. I think, we'll, I think I'll be me and you'll be you. But only way better, okay? Way, way, way better. Okay, now here's the question. How is all that going to happen? How's all that going to happen? I'm about to tell you all you need to know. Okay, ready? This is profound. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is sold up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's how it's going to happen. That's how the whole thing is going to happen. It's a mystery. But it's going to happen just like that. We shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Well, hey, t hang on. How many cemeteries are there? How many graves? They all got to be opened up. How long is that going to take to get all those bodies that have been eaten by creatures at the bottom of the sea? Get all those bodies together. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the supernatural and the power of God. So that's, that's not even a wiggle of his little finger if we can even use that expression to bring all that about and it's happening at the last great day <clears throat> let, me, let me say one more thing here the results of this resurrection will be permanent it will never be undone The results will be permanent. And in Matthew 25, these will go away into eternal, eternal punishment. But the righteous into how long is that? That's something like forever. 
It's permanent. It will never be undone. Okay, now let's answer the question you all have been just dying to know the time of the resurrection. It's going to take place when God says it's going to take place. Any questions? What's wrong? That's true. This is where so many of the differences in eschatology come to the surface. It's not my purpose to unravel every system and expose their strengths and weaknesses. I confess to being a classic amillennialist, which basically says there'll be one, here it is. There'll be, isn't that simple? There's going to be one return of Jesus. The millennium is a figurative expression for that, that period of time that the church is currently in right now. Um, and that period is going to come to an end when Jesus comes back. When he comes back, the dead will be raised. Those who are alive on the earth at that time will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. There'll be the judgment, the sheep and the goats, the whole nine yards. The goats will be consigned to hell forever. The sheep will enter into eternal bliss on the new heavens and the new earth. And there it is. That's a classic amillennial position. Um, and it happens, it all happens when Jesus returns on that last great day. But let me give you the, the, the clear scriptures on the return of Christ and what will happen when he comes. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. We already looked at this once. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. How many resurrections are there? There's one. It's the end of Matthew 27. Christ was crucified and he was resurrected. The Bible says that during that time, several of the tombs were open. Many of the prophets are the Old Testament saints. You got up and were walking around and talking about us. Now that would be quite the experience. Wouldn't it? <laughs> so do you believe that those folks at that point I mean, we've seen to indicate that they went to heaven following Christ, and their bodies were raised out of the tomb. Behold, I tell you a great mystery. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems, you know, for us, it's a great encouragement. I mean, it's the reality that there's a, there's a, so to speak, a preview. That was, uh, that, that was just the word was coming to my mind. Trailer to the show. It's, yeah, it's like a trailer. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's a, it's a, it's a preview. Then they um, give us their names because that wasn't the important part. No. Like was, those tokens are all done one day, we're going to come out. Yeah. It yeah. all has everything to do with Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I, so, I do not marvel at this. I mean, we do, but there's another sense in which we shouldn't marvel at it at all because it's the power of God at work. Right? Um, so there's no indication here of any separation in time between the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Um, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit in his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them. Did you know that all the nations, it, when he comes, all the nations will be there. Anybody left out? When he comes, all the nations will be there. That's not three different comings of Jesus. That's one. When he comes, all the nations will be gathered. And then the judgment takes place. Um, and the end of that is these will go away to eternal funds of the righteous into eternal life. It all happens when he comes. Again, this is recorded for us as one great event, not two events separated by a thousand years or three events. It all happens at once when Jesus returns at the end of this age. Several of the other passages indicating the time of these events refer primarily to the resurrection of the just. Okay? That's true. That was simply the writer's focus in that particular passage, it doesn't mean that there are two different resurrections just because one of them isn't mentioned. That's reading an awful lot into the context 
of those statements, like 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Does that mean that there's going to be a whole nother resurrection? No, all it means is that his focus at that point was on the resurrection of the just. To read into that a whole nother resurrection is to argue from silence, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Okay? Um, um, yeah, I said I think I was going to finish early. That ain't happening. Um, uh, let me just mention here Revelation 20, 4 to 6. Um, and I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon, and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. It sounds like there's going to be another one. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is where most premillenarians camp for two resurrections, one at the beginning and one at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Um, uh, just a couple of comments here. This statement comes in that highly symbolic, figurative, apocalyptic book of Revelation, where we understand the thousand years to be, a, to be a long extended period of time and not necessarily exactly 1,000 years to the day. That's the kind of language that is used throughout the book of Revelation. Um, <clears throat> it's important to note that the people who are being referred to here are the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Is he talking about bodies or souls? What's he talking about? Souls. Of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. And so, scholars, I'm not in their pay grade, okay? Um, This vision must refer to something other than the resurrection of saints' bodies at Christ's return, destroying the last enemy death. The event to which John's vision refers ushers those who experience it into the privileges of priests who worship in God's presence and kings who share in Christ's rule. So his point is, and he goes on to explain, it's not going to take time to read it all. His point is that this is a reference to those who have died and gone and their souls have gone to be with Jesus. That's this first resurrection. And isn't that a resurrection of sorts when Harold's soul left his body and went into the presence of Christ? That's a resurrection of sorts. But his reference is to the souls of those who've been beheaded. That's so much more that could be said about that. Um, Burkhoff's systematic theology takes the same position. Um, but now we got about three minutes, and um, let me address some practical implications flowing out of the reality of the resurrection. The first one is this, the sobering reality and finality of the resurrection of the unjust ought to fuel our prayers for and efforts to reach the lost. You have lost neighbors, loved ones. Um, co-workers are we praying are we speaking to our neighbors our, and to our co-workers and attempting to establish friendships as a platform for giving out the gospel are we, are we, are we giving to facilitate the spread of the gospel in other places 
the sobering reality and finality of the resurrection of the unjust ought to fuel our prayers for and our efforts to reach the lost. The reality of a coming resurrection ought to fuel our pursuit of purity. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Does the fact of a resurrected, glorified, perfected body lead to carelessness with regard to sin? It ought to fuel our pursuit of purity because someday we're going to be like him. And we ought to be doing everything under the sun to be as much like him as we can when he comes back. It ought to fuel our pursuit of purity. And lastly, the reality of the resurrection ought to fuel our steadfast endurance when the going gets hard. We all know this text, right? Where does that come? On the tail end of the longest discourse in all of scripture on the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15. Therefore, because all this resurrection stuff is true, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Are we spinning our wheels here? No. Because there's a day coming when Jesus is going to set it all right and he's going to finish the work he has begun in us. So don't grow weary. That day is coming. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'm so glad we're out of time for questions. <coughs> if you have them, please. Ask them later. Be happy to talk about it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope that you set before us that there is a day of resurrection coming. It will be all inclusive. It will be glorious. It will be magnificent. It's going to be supernatural. It's hard for us to take all of that in. But will you fuel our hope? Will you fuel our prayers for and efforts to reach the lost? Will you fuel our pursuit of purity? Will you fill us with endurance and steadfast hope? Because that day is coming when Jesus will return. Make us ready for that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Twice.